I was a bit concerned knowing that this is a holiday weekend and people would be away. I guess I was right. So I took the precaution of inviting my family so we'd at least have some people here. So uh, I asked all my sons and daughters and grandchildren and family dog and anybody else that wanted to come. And uh, so if you have not met all my sons and daughters, or if you haven't seen them for a few years, introduce yourself, give them a handshake and a hug, and don't let them go without a greeting. When John asked me to fill in for him a couple weeks ago, uh, I wasn't sure what I'd talk on, but I decided I'd share my testimony this morning. And uh, I was reminded, I heard about an old man who was asked by his pastor to get up and uh, share his life's Christian story. That was a different old man. So he was a man of few words, and uh, he got up and he said, Once I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he sat down. Well, I thought that was so good, I decided to do the same thing. <laughs> Once I was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, maybe I'll add some details to that. I do want to glorify the Lord Jesus for all he's done in my life and Thank him for his grace and his mercy. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to 2 Peter 3. This is not going to be a gutter to God testimony. Maybe you don't know what a gutter to God testimony is, but uh, it's like if a person was asked to share their testimony, they get up and talk for an hour about all their sins, their time in prison, uh, the bad women and bad men they've run around with, the drugs they took and the alcohol they used. And then finally at the end they say, well, I got saved, praise the Lord. And that was the end. So I'm not gonna do that. Now I'm ashamed to say that I was very familiar with the gutter, but uh, we're not gonna talk about that. And I got a feeling some of you were familiar with the gutter too. Okay, 2 Peter 3, if you look at verse 1 and follow along with me. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world was, being overflowed with water, perished. 
Basically, what I think this is trying to say, among other things, is that by looking at the Earth today, you can't envision what it looked like long ago because there was a great flood. You know, God judged the world and the sin of the world, the corruption, by this flood. And he washed the earth clean. And this tremendous rush of water from the earth and from the heavens changed everything. And it made everything new and clean. The filth of the earth was removed. And all the people perished except for Noah's family. And God started over on the earth with a new people. Well, maybe you can see the parallel here that God judged the sins of humanity in Jesus Christ on the cross and His grace and His word and His blood have totally cleansed the new believer. So what He looks like now is nothing like what you might have seen before. By faith, that's my testimony that by looking at me now, you can't discern what I was like before. And other Christians too. You have no idea what kind of sin they were involved in, but the grace of God came and like a flood washed all that away. Now I was born September 1948 in New Britain, Connecticut. Now before you ladies start digging in your purse looking for your calculator, and before you guys start counting 48, 58, 68, I'm just gonna tell you I'm 70 years old. That was easier, wasn't it? I have no idea how I got here so fast, but <laughs> here I am. So I grew up in the 1950s and 60s, and that was a, a wonderful era to grow up in. Uh, the Korean War was over in 1953, and after that, it was a, a good time in America. The economy was good and growing. Morality was at its best. So. Uh, I say it's a privilege to have grown up in that period of time. Now, speaking of the word privilege, I believe God has privileged me in many ways, and I'd like to share some of those with you. It's not that I was anything special, but God had his hand on me, and I'm thankful. Some would say I had a lot of lucky breaks in my life, but we know better. Life was good in our family until I was about two years old. And then my mother somehow got addicted to painkillers and barbiturates. And it really messed her up physically and mentally. I don't know the whole story how that happened, but she was no longer able to take care of my sister and me. I also had no relatives that were able to take us in either. So we were put into an orphanage in New Britain, my hometown. It's called the Children's Home, the Klingberg Children's Home. It was started by a man named John Klingberg back in the early part of the 1900s. And uh, he was a Swedish Baptist pastor. He has a testimony similar to that of George Mueller, if you have ever read his book or heard his report about his orphanages in England. And Mr. Klingberg and Mr. Mueller both trusted the Lord for the care of all these children and uh, never asked a soul for a, a nickel or a dime or a pound, and God provided. 
And it's a wonderful testimony. And if you'd like Mr. Klingberg's biography, there's a copy of the book back in John's library. And it's called John Klingberg, Adventurer in Faith. And uh, I have a copy at home too, and it's one of my favorite books. And looking back at that experience, I think of it as a real privilege to have been part of a godly man's work like that. Happy to say, my mom got better, and my sister and I went home when I was four years old, permanently. I did carry some baggage with me, emotional baggage. I didn't steal any suitcases. But uh, I did have a, a fear of abandonment. But uh, after salvation, Jesus took that all away. He delivered me. My growing up years were what I would call very normal. Our home life was good. My parents loved each other. My dad was an engineer, and my mom was a teacher of disabled children in their homes. And we lived in a nice middle-class neighborhood. I was not especially good in school, but I'm proud to say I graduated in the top three quarters of my class. <laughs> Somehow, I was accepted to a good college, the Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York. I always assumed they just needed my money, and that's why they accepted me, because I didn't have high credentials. <laughs> I really shouldn't have gone. I was really too immature, and I had no direction. I was going to be studying mechanical engineering, and that wasn't highly interesting to me. So I ended up learning not what I should have, but I, what I shouldn't have <laughs> that year. RIT, that's the initials of the school. Uh, they had a very good photography course there, one of the best in the country. Eastman Kodak Company is in Rochester and uh, other photography businesses too, so it was kind of a mecca for, can I say that? A mecca for photography. But I had no interest in photography. I had friends that were taking it, and I'd see their pictures on their walls, but it had no appeal to me. I only mentioned that because there was a drastic change that came over me a couple years after that. So although I had no interest in that, uh, apparently I had not much interest in engineering either, as I did very poorly that year. So I transferred to the Hartford State Technical College, and then I lived at home with my parents, hoping to improve. And during that period, one of my dad's uncles died. I guess he was my great uncle, but I never knew him. And he had been an amateur photographer, and he was pretty good. But he left a couple of boxes of cameras and flashes and paraphernalia. And my dad picked those up and brought those home and said, uh, look through this. If there's anything there that you'd like, uh, I'll buy it from the estate for you. So I took it up to my room that evening. And I stayed up, I think, half the night looking through all that stuff. And it really interested me. It uh, grabbed my attention. In my affection. I started reading all about photography and practicing, and uh, it was totally capturing my energies. I loved it. I became editor of the yearbook 
in my second year at that school and uh, submitted photographs to the yearbook. I only mention this because God used this to get me to Indiana where he was going to save me. And I'll tell you about that. Well, I dropped out of engineering college about halfway through my third year. I was disillusioned and I hated it. If I hadn't dropped out, I probably would have flunked out. Now, just to change the subject here briefly, I regret that God was nowhere in my life at that time, all these years. It wasn't part of my life, part of my thoughts. I was active in my church, my parents' church, from infancy. I had been president of the youth group in my senior year, but I was actually a great hypocrite. I could sin on Saturday and sing in the choir on Sunday. I really only lived for my social life. I had no direction, except the wrong direction. When I dropped out of college, I knew that I would be eligible very soon for the draft. It would be a two-year enlistment. Early 69, the Vietnam War was in full swing at that time. And I knew if I got drafted, very likely I'd be a foot soldier there, and I didn't want to be. So what I did was I enlisted for three years instead of the two-year draft, and that gave me the option of choosing the school I would study and uh, had some possibility of a safe position, and that's what I did. So I chose the field of aerial photography interpretation. In other words, I'd be looking at spy photographs. And uh, although the Army invested 13 weeks training me how to do that, I never worked at it. But they did send me to Korea, and I had a very soft office job there, working basically 40 hours a week. So I traveled a lot. I got around to other parts of the country and saw the culture, taking my cameras with me anywhere I went. I took approximately 2,000 black and white pictures and approximately 2,000 color pictures in those two years I was over there. And I spent a lot of time in the base craft shop, and I learned how to do developing and photo printing. And uh, unfortunately, while I was in Korea, I learned more about sin and the ways of the world, but I thank God again for his forgiveness. By the time I got out in October 71, I knew that I wanted a career in photography. So uh, I worked at a camera store in, in my hometown of Britain for a year. And then I went to the Rhode Island School of Photography. Now, I was older than all the other kids by this time. I was 24. They were 18, just getting out of high school. They were like I was in my freshman year. Not much direction, partying. But I was older. I had my good direction set, and I knew what I wanted. So I was serious, and I was focused. And you know, photographers have to be focused. John and Maddie Hobbs were on the staff at the Rhode Island School of Photography. They were both master photographers and photographic craftsmen by the Professional Photographers of America. And they were also on staff at a school in Winona Lake, Indiana. They would Rhode Island school during the 
cool months, and then in the summer, they can go to Winona Lake. And because I did well that year at Rhode Island, they asked me to be on staff at the Winona School in 1973. And I joyfully accepted it. Again, that was a privilege because that was one of the nation's leading schools for professionals. So I was hired as a staff assistant. I would help the teachers. Uh, we would set up props, mix chemicals and develop film, that kind of thing. I was one of several staff guys. And we rented a house that was owned by a Christian family who went to the Glory Barn Church, not far from Winona Lake. This was not just a normal family. This was a, a woman and her children and about 15 or so other young people. It was basically a Christian commune. And they all lived in a big blue house, not too far from where we rented. So we would see these kids fairly often when we paid the rent every week or if they came over to do maintenance on our rental house. Well, one evening, Bob Foster, one of the staff guys, he and I were on the Winona Lake waterfront watching the sunset and watching ducks take off on land, very picturesque. And John Whetstone came over to talk with us about Jesus. Now, John was one of these people from the big blue house. Well, Bob left. He got in his car and packed his gear, but I had better manners, so I hung around and talked with John for a while. And it was a good witness, and God planted seeds in my heart. I was invited to dinner one time at the Big Blue House, and uh, the Lord was really dealing with me at that time. The kids would talk with me and told me about their experiences with the Lord, and they had a good testimony. They invited me to go with them one morning to the glory barn, and that was a totally new experience. Now, it really was a barn. It was built, I believe, in 1830, and it was a sheep barn. But it was totally remodeled, and it would seat about 500 people, the upstairs and the downstairs. And when I got there, everybody was really friendly and very welcoming. There were old people and lots of young people, lots of long-haired young men and long-haired young women. And when the praise started, I'd never heard praise before. I grew up in the denominational church where we would sing first, second, and fourth verse of uh, the hymns out of the hymnal, but I'd never heard people praising the Lord before. It was totally new. And I also never heard anybody play guitar in church. That was new. And I noticed everybody seemed so joyful and clean, and I didn't feel very clean, and I wasn't very clean. Well, this praise went on for an hour. And finally, the preacher got up and he taught. His name was Hobart Freeman. And he was teaching the book of Zechariah. And I'd never heard Bible teaching before. When he was done, I left pretty quickly and went out and sat in the Blue House van, just waiting to go back. A young lady came out and sat with me. Uh, she had a real pretty face and curly hair. She had ridden from the Blue House to the barn with uh, somebody else, and then she was going to go back in the van. 
So we introduced ourselves. I said, I'm John. She said, my name's Yvette. So we talked all the way back to Winona Lake, about a 25 minute drive, and she was very pleasant to talk to. As I said, the Lord was working on me on the inside, and I knew that I needed him. Well, the date was July 12th, and they invited me to go to a music concert in Fort Wayne at the Calvary Chapel. And it was going to be featuring Andre Crouch and the Disciples, a singing group. So we all sat in the balcony. By that time, the Lord had shown a condition. I'd heard the word of salvation and believed it. I had not committed fully to the Lord at that time, but I determined if Andre made an invitation at the end to salvation and would pray, then I would commit my life to Jesus. Well, he did, and I did. And I confessed it in the van on the way home, and there's a lot of praising the Lord. <laughs> well, the Lord started changing me quickly. I gave up smoking and drinking, using bad words, listening to bad music. I broke off a bad relationship. I did this on my own by the Holy Spirit. I didn't have anybody coaching me to do any of these things. I'm not boasting. It's just that's the way the Lord dealt with me. Well, I began going to all the Glory Barn meetings, and I loved it, and I was growing. And after about a month, I got the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I only had a few words in tongues to begin with, but many months later, the Lord blessed me with a full language. Well, I started to spend a lot more time at the Big Blue House. I uh, went to uh, church with them at the, all the meetings and uh, had meals and spent evenings there. At the end of the summer, I was supposed to go back to Connecticut and then finish my second year at Rhode Island. But the family asked me if I would stay and not go back. And I prayed about it, of course. This would be a complete change of career direction for me. I'd be pretty much forsaking photography if I stayed there in this little town. So uh, I prayed about it, and the Lord led me to stay there. And after the photography school closed at the end of that season, I moved into the big blue house. And I really enjoyed that. We had constant fellowship with all the other young people there. Uh, I had a roommate, Ron. He and I were up on the third floor. But I could go down to the dining room, living room anytime, and there would always be somebody to talk to. And it was a very edifying time. By the next spring, some of the kids decided to move out, go back to their families, and I did too. I decided to get an apartment on the canal in Winona Lake and had a roommate. And Yvette and a friend of hers also moved out and had an apartment down the other end of the canal. Well, she and I started seeing each other quite a lot. We'd go to church meetings and picnics and church functions and youth meetings. We grew to love each other, and it was wonderful. 
One evening, we were in the car sitting in front of her apartment, and she said, where would you like our relationship to go? Well, I said, I'm not sure, but I don't want to lose you. I had other girls previously, but uh, I never had any interest in commitment. And now I was facing commitment. That was new to me. Now, Yvette was planning a trip back to Texas, where she was from, to visit her family. And this would be two weeks away. And we determined that we would use this period of time to fast and to pray and to seek the Lord about us. We knew what we wanted, but we wanted to know what the Lord's will was. Well, while she was gone, I went to all the regular meetings at church. And uh, there was a Friday meeting, which was led by Bruce Kinsey. He was one of Dr. Freeman's sons-in-law. He always had the Friday night meeting. It was very good. And he was more youth-oriented than Brother Freeman. Well, he taught on holiness that Friday evening, especially with regard to young people, dating, courting. And he was saying that to be holy before the Lord, young people shouldn't be doing a lot of kissing and hugging and smooching and touching and that kind of thing. He said, when you get married, that's the time for that. Well, Yvette and I had been affectionate, cuddling, and we were appropriate. We were Christians, and we, we weren't doing anything wrong. But we decided, based on what he had taught, to just quit that in the future. So when I phoned her the next time, I told her what Bruce had taught, and we agreed, well, we'll just give that up as from the Lord. So finally it was time for her plane to land in Indianapolis, so I drove down to pick her up. And I could see her down a long concourse. She was walking toward me, and I think she saw me and smiled. But she was far away. She looked so cute with her little mini dress on. <laughs> was I supposed to say that? <laughs> okay. Well, I'm reminded of the old Clairol commercial, Clairol hair coloring. It's just, the closer she gets, the better she looked. And here she came. This is the woman I loved, and I was going to ask her to marry me. And she got closer and closer. And there she was, 10 feet away, 5 feet away. And I stuck out my hand, and I shook her hand. <laughs> Isn't that right? Yeah. <laughs> well, we wanted to be holy before the Lord and walk in the light we had just learned, so that was what we did. I picked up her suitcases, and we walked back to the car. And as yet, neither of us had shared what the Lord showed us about our relationship. Well, you'd think that I'd quickly drop on a knee and propose marriage, but uh, I did it a little bit differently. You know, some people climb a mountain to get engaged or they'll go to a nice waterfall. George and Lila, they got engaged in a hot air balloon over Louisville. But old John decided to do things differently. So when we sat in the car, there was an envelope on the dashboard of my car, which I had put there. And this is the actual 
card that was in the envelope, and I handed this to her. It's a Charlie Brown card, peanuts. There's Linus with his blanket. He says, will you do something nice for me? And the inside says, have a happy birthday. Well, I crossed that out, and I said, would you be my wife forever and ever? <laughs> of course she laughed. <laughs> but then she gave me a loving look and said, yes. <laughs> and I'm so glad. So I shook her hand. Isn't that the most romantic proposal you've ever heard? <laughs> well, when you think of engagements, uh, getting engaged in a hot air balloon, I looked it up online. For two people to take a trip in a hot air balloon from Louisville is about $500. Let me show you something, young men. <laughs> 35 cents. <laughs> You young guys, keep that in mind. You have to be wise with your finances. Well, it was a two and a half hour trip back to Winona Lake. I think it was three or three and a half because I took a wrong turn. My head was in the clouds. But the time went quick. We had so much fun. We planned our wedding, planned our honeymoon, planned our whole life. Talked about how many children we were going to have. Boy, we didn't know planned what our business would be like, planned our honeymoon. Well, we could have waited till the following August. This was August. Uh, that would be appropriate to wait a year. Or we could have just gone till June. June's a good month to get married. No, we decided to get married in six weeks. The truth is, I didn't want her to change her mind, so that's why it was six weeks. Actually, she was 23 and I was 26. We knew each other very well. We had the mind of the Lord. We didn't need to wait a year, so we thought six weeks would be good. So I finally took her back to her apartment from the airport. Our hearts were full of joy and love. And I walked her over to the stairway that goes up to her apartment, and I told her goodnight. And I shook her hand. <laughs> Well, the six weeks went very quickly, arranging things, inviting people, planning our trip to New England. Tom Skaggs was nice enough to print our invitations for us. Yes, we had a Tom Skaggs up there, too. <laughs> and he was a printer. And we got married at the Glory Barn, October 5th, 1974, just a year and three months after I got saved. We received a lot of nice gifts, of course, and somebody took those back to our apartment. We had also received some money gifts in envelopes. And that was very helpful because I didn't have much money. The job at the photo school, I had done part of a second year there. That had just closed out. And I was basically unemployed. I had big plans for a photography business when we got back, but nothing much was going on. So we really didn't have enough money for a big trip to New England. We had planned to go to Niagara Falls, then Connecticut, then to Maine to see my cousins. We had enough to get started, 
And we just decided, well, we're just going to trust the Lord and we're going to go. And that's because we were youthful and carefree and joyful and lighthearted. So we didn't plan too well. We went to Niagara Falls for a couple of days. And then by the time we got to Connecticut, my money was gone, just about gone. But my mother came up with a couple of savings bonds that I had bought while I was in the Army. And uh, it was taken out of my pay every month and sent home. And she produced those, and that gave us some spending money. So we went north to Maine and got to visit with my cousins. And then we met John and Maddie. Remember John and Maddie? They were from the photography school. Well. They not only taught in Rhode Island and Winona Lake, Indiana, they also had a cottage in Maine. And when we told them that we'd be going up there on our honeymoon, they said, well, be sure to stop in. So we planned to do that. By the time we got close to their place, we were out of money, completely out. Our gas tank was just about empty. It was evening, we had not eaten, we were hungry had no place to stay that night. So things were looking kind of bleak. So before we actually got to their cottage, we stopped and prayed. We prayed that God would give us a meal and he'd give us lodging for the night, give us gas and film and lobster. <laughs> You'd think that would be an extravagance, but my wife being from Texas had never had a Maine lobster. I guess I never had either. And she wanted a lobster, so we claimed lobster, too. Well, we got to the Hobbs Cottage about 8 p.m. and uh, went in and visited with them for a little while. And Maddie said, are you kids hungry? Could I get you something? Well, we didn't want to act too hungry. Finally, she said, well, I've got some spaghetti from our supper left over. Would you like that? So we said, yes, that would be very nice. Thank you. So we had spaghetti and salad. And while we were eating, John said, where are you kids staying tonight? See, he could call us kids. They were in their 50s, we were in our 20s. Yeah, where are you staying tonight? Well, I said, well, we'll probably get back on the road and find a place on the way back to Connecticut. He said, well, why don't you just stay with us? We've got an extra bedroom here and we'd love to have you. So we looked at each other and decided, well, yeah, we'd like to do that. So we spent the night with them. Had breakfast in the morning, and John said, well, how's your film holding out, John, on your honeymoon? I said, you know, I'm on my last roll right now. He said, oh, wait a minute. So he went over to his closet and opened up, got a box down off the shelf full of film. When he finished up at the Winona School for the summer, the Eastman Kodak loaded them up with film and uh, they just wouldn't use it for another year. So uh, he took what they wanted, and that was fine. So he said, you know, here's a couple of rolls of color. Here's a couple of rolls of black and white. Had all we need for the rest of the honeymoon. So they walked us out of the car, and uh, Maddie handed us an envelope as we got in our car. And I thought, well, good. Praise the Lord, a, a wedding card. Well, inside was a $20 bill. Now, that might not sound too impressive, $20, but 
This is 1974. We were paying 50 cents a gallon for gasoline, and now it's 220 or so. We were driving a little Chevy Vega with a four-cylinder engine. I think it had a 12-gallon tank, so we filled the tank for $6. And on the way home, we bought a lobster roll at a roadside stand, and we rejoiced all the way back to Connecticut. So God gave us five vivid answers to prayer in that very short period of time. We never hinted that we had any needs. We never acted like we were hungry or poor. It was just the Lord. Well, my parents had planned a family reception for us the next evening. And uh, all my cousins and aunts and uncles and some friends showed up. And we had many gift envelopes there, praise the Lord. So we finally made it back to Winona Lake in style, rejoicing in our hearts. I want to say this about taking a faith trip, that when you take a trip, you plan ahead. You take money. If you're going to stay somewhere, make reservations. Don't try to do what we did. When we got back, we started our photography business. This was the middle of October, and it was northern Indiana. We didn't have a studio or a place to do portraits, and we had been doing portraits outside in the park. But without a place, we were kind of stuck. It wasn't too long, though. We moved into a bigger house in Warsaw that had a nice front room that was a good studio. But still, we were struggling financially. I was earning just about enough money to starve on. Now Yvette's father was a painter in Dallas and he was acquainted with Brother Freeman and he called Brother Freeman and said that uh, he'd be up visiting us for a couple of weeks and if he had any painting to do he'd be glad to do it for him. So that was arranged. And uh, my father-in-law asked me if I'd like to go along and help with the painting, so I did. While he was painting on the inside of the house, he left me out in the garage painting the walls out there. Now, Faith Ministries' office was in the house. Faith Ministries is where they did the mailing of Brother Freeman's books and tapes. And uh, Bruce Kinsey, you remember him? He was uh, the manager. He had the oversight. Well, I was painting, and Bruce came through and said, I want to talk to you before you go. And then he walked out. No expression in his voice. Let me tell you a little bit about Bruce. He was very kind-hearted and friendly, but he had been a Marine Corps drill sergeant, and he was a Vietnam veteran. And he could speak rather curtly and authoritatively. And I thought, oh no, what have I done? Did he discern some sin in me? Was somebody talking bad about me? Was I in trouble? Was I going to be excommunicated? So I was seriously sweating and examining my life. Finally, an hour or so later, he came through and I couldn't restrain myself. I said, Bruce, what was it you wanted to talk to me about? And he said one word, employment, employment. 
and then he walked out. You have no idea what a wonderful word that was. <laughs> All my condemnation vanished. My burden was lifted. Employment. Well, he soon explained to me that they needed part-time help duplicating cassettes in the office. And they wondered if I'd help. And I said, yes. And I was so happy. I was happy for two reasons. Because I really needed to work. And it was a privilege for me to work for a minister I respected, like Hobart Freeman. Well, part-time work before too long became full-time because the ministry was growing and then the office work was growing. In those days, Brother Freeman used to travel once a month to some faraway city and teaching what he called the end-time message of faith and deeper life in the Spirit. And it was announced that he'd be going to New Orleans in a few weeks. And that caught my attention for some reason. So Yvette and I prayed about it and believed it was the Lord's will, or at least we had his permission to go there. So we claimed everything we'd need for the trip and we made plans to go. And Sister Freeman was in touch with the church in New Orleans and uh, arranged for somebody to put us up for the weekend. Well, it was time to go, but we only had enough money to get there and not enough to get back. And when we got back, our rent would be due. $165 for our big house. Now this time we were a little bit more serious. We had a little baby, Molly. There she is. <laughs> she doesn't remember the trip because she was only two months old. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we weren't being frivolous. We were serious and we decided, well, we've made plans. Everything's arranged. We've claimed all we need. Let's go. So we did. It was a two-day drive to New Orleans, so we stopped in Tennessee along the way. And we would often sing while we drove along and praise the Lord, pray along the way. Now, my speedometer was not working very well. It would kind of bump up and down. So we drove slower than necessary, just as a precaution. Didn't want to go faster than we should. Well, on day two, God gave Yvette a prophecy just for us. And he gave a vision to me at the same time as we were driving. And we don't remember the words of the prophecy much, except God was saying something like, when we step out in faith, not knowing what was ahead, he'd be there for us. When she finished telling the prophecy, I explained the vision I had just had. And what this was, I think I shared it here once, it was a vision of a lighthouse, a white lighthouse. And instead of having steps on the inside spiraling up, it had steps on the outside. They were just slabs of rock spiraling up on the outside. If you were to climb that, you couldn't see where you were going very far but you know that the light would be at the top. Well, it was pretty clear what the Lord was showing us, that when you walk by faith, you can't see very far around the corner always. You don't always know exactly what's ahead. You just have to walk by faith and know that the light is up there and the answer to your prayers is ahead. Immediately, we had our hands up, praising the Lord for His goodness and for encouraging us 
with the prophecy and the vision. It was so good. We had our hands in the air. I had one on the wheel. We're driving along like this, and all of a sudden, brother and sister drove by. And they were going pretty fast. And I knew they wouldn't speed, so that indicated we must be going pretty slow. But all of a sudden, our speedometer started working. So we were able to speed up and go the rest of the time with it working. And we praised the Lord. God was so gracious to confirm that we were doing what he wanted us to do by going. And later I talked to Sister Freeman in New Orleans and I said, that, uh, did you know you passed us on the highway? She said, no. Uh, I said, well, we were praising the Lord because he just showed us a couple things. We had our hands in the air. She said, oh, we saw you. They didn't know what our car looked like. And Brother Freeman had said, uh, look, there's some people with their hands in the air. They must be praising the Lord. He said, they must be Christians. We were and we are. Finally, in New Orleans, we met up with the people we were going to stay with, the Morgan family. They were very kind to us. They showed us around old New Orleans and took us to breakfast there. And we went to all the meetings with them. And then on the last day, as we were leaving, they handed us an envelope. So we said our goodbyes and thank you. And we got in the car and drove off. We got halfway down the block. I said, open it, open it. <laughs> and inside was $500. This is $500 in 1974 money. That's probably worth $1,500. 2000 I don't know. But we never hinted to them that we had any needs. It was just the Lord. So we rejoiced in the Lord some more and drove back to Indiana in style. Now let me say it again. If you plan a trip, plan ahead. Take money, get reservations at your motel. Don't try to copy what we did but uh, if you want to copy our faith in that aspect, that's fine. But God was teaching us, and that's the way it worked for us. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the Glory Barn. That was quite an experience. Jane was there. We had several meetings a week, but the main meetings were on Sunday, 10 in the morning like ours, and then 7 in the evening. Lots of people wanted to go and to get a good seat, you'd have to go early. So there was always a waiting line. The meeting was at 10, and the door opened at 9, and there'd be a line of people waiting to get in that would start lining up in the middle of the night just to get a seat, often 1 or 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I would customarily go with Roy Martin. I had a bigger car, so we would take my car. Uh, we'd rendezvous at 4 o'clock in the morning, and we'd go get in line. Actually, we'd just put something in line. If it was dry weather, we'd put our Bibles in the parking lot or a lawn chair, just something to hold our place, and then we'd go sleep in the car. And then uh, 9.30 or so, the ladies would come in the other car with all the kids. Well, the church was thriving and growing, and Faith Ministries was also thriving and growing. We had, at the most, uh, five employees at one time. We had a John and a Paul and a Mark. So we tried to keep it scriptural. And then we also had a, a couple of ladies that worked part-time. During that time, 
Our twins were born, and they're both here. And then a total of seven children were born to us while we lived in Indiana. And in all those 20 years, 18 for me and 20 for Yvette, Jesus was our only healer all those years. We had a family of nine people with no doctor bills, and Jesus never failed us. And I praise him for that. 1984, Brother Freeman died. And of course, things slowed down at the office. We didn't have a constant demand to send out cassettes by the thousand. So after a while, Paul left and then Mark left and only John remained. But I was able to carry the load and do all the duplicating and mailing and everything myself and did this for many years. Late in the 1980s, uh, Sister Freeman and I embarked on a project doing the theology book, Exploring Biblical Theology. If you haven't read that or seen that, there's copies back in the library here. What happened with that, we had ladies in the church who would listen to the tapes and take the dictation down and put it on computer disk. And then I would take that, put it all together on our office computer, print it out, and then Sister Freeman and I would do some serious editing and slashing and proofreading, and finally released the book in about 1990, and that was one of the high points of my time at the office. If you haven't read that, I'm not trying to do a sales pitch because there's copies you can borrow back there, but it, it's a concise theology book in easy to understand language, and it's easy to read. Well, work slowed after the completion of that book, so I was really only needed at the office three days a week. But my friend John Whetstone invited me to work for him three days a week. You remember John Whetstone? He's the one that preached to me on the waterfront there that evening. That was many years later, but we were best of friends. So I worked for John three days a week, and I worked for the office three days a week. John had a woodworking shop. He built furniture, did some stripping and refinishing and restoration. And he taught me a lot at the time I was working for him. I appreciate that. In the early 90s, we felt that Faith Assembly was faltering. They were inviting in people that taught things that we didn't agree with, that were not part of our background. And so we prayerfully and painfully quit Faith Assembly. And it was soon after that I was asked to quit Faith Ministries, although I wanted to stay. So we had no church. This was the summer of 91. We looked around and we attended a few other meetings. Nothing fit very well. We call this our wilderness wanderings. Well, we heard some Tom Hamilton tapes, and they sounded really refreshing to us because we hadn't heard what we thought was invigorating sound teaching for quite a while. So we visited here a couple of times, and we prayed and uh, believed we had the mind of the Lord to move here. Well, I had to consider what would I do here for employment because I had no job. 
I could try to start a photography business, but I felt my skills were kind of rusty from all the years that had gone by. I had some office experience after 16 years working for Faith Ministries, but they were not really marketable. They were pretty specific toward that office. Or we could do furniture repair and refinishing. And that's what we settled on. But I really was a novice, but the Lord blessed us. But before we moved, John Solinger offered to let me work for him. He was a painter, you know, and uh, I could help him. He knew we wanted to have a refinishing repair business. And he said, well, you could, I could work for him until our business opened up. So that's what we did. So at the end of August 1991, we moved our seven children and our belongings 250 miles to Shelbyville, Kentucky. Now, there was a woman in the church here that was especially good at finding houses for people. Anytime somebody needed a rental, they would look to this woman. Anybody know who that is? Starla. She found us a very nice house on Eminence Pike. It was $600 a month. This is 27 years ago. That's probably equivalent to $1,200 house now. I didn't have much income. But that's the only thing that opened up. This house had a full basement, so we started restoration workshop in the basement. There was one day that I visited Wakefield Scarce Galleries by myself. I hadn't been there before. If you've never been there or you're unfamiliar with it, they specialize in beautiful, imported, expensive antiques from England and Europe. Well, I was up on the third floor just looking around, and uh, one of the people on staff there was up there dusting furniture, and we got talking, and I said, well, we had just moved here, and uh, I do furniture repair, refinishing, restoration. She said, you just wait a minute. She went downstairs and talked to Pat Burnett. Pat Burnett is a son-in-law of the owner, Mark Scarce, and uh, was also a manager. Well, he came up in a few minutes. I was glad to meet him, and I just told him what we were doing here in Kentucky, going to SCA, and uh, what I was going to do for my work. He said, well, we already have an older man doing their work, but uh, it's nice to meet you, and welcome to Shelbyville. And then he walked off. But God was working. That wasn't discouraging. I knew something would happen. One day, John and I had to go by the Wakefield Scarce Galleries to pick up a ladder, and Johnny Roberts was there. Now, Johnny is the old man that Pat was talking about that did their touch-up and repair. So I got to meet him, and I said, I'd really like to see your shop sometime. And he said, well, it ain't much. It's just a corner of my wife's garage when her car's not there. I went up there and had a look around, and we talked, and he said, well, why don't you just come in every Tuesday and uh, see how I work, and I'll show you some things. So every Tuesday I went up there for a few weeks, and he finally called Mark Scarce at the gallery and said he thought that I was qualified to take his place. Now, Johnny had told them seven years earlier that he wanted to quit, but they wouldn't let him quit. 
There was nobody to take his place. So finally he got to retire. I got his job and we were both very happy. So I painted for John for two months and then this opened up at Restoration Workshop and I got to quit painting. I have to admit, looking back, that I was woefully prepared to do repair and refinishing. I knew much less than I thought I did, especially regarding this high dollar fine imported furniture. But still, the Lord blessed the work of my hands and the things that I did came out good, even though I wasn't highly sure what I was doing. Well, after seven months in that house, we had to move because the owners decided to sell. We found a nice house in Southville, but there was no place for a shop. But good old Bob Andriot invited me to move our workshop up to his coach house in the upstairs part, and that's what we did. And we were there nearly eight years, and the exposure there was wonderful. He had a constant clientele coming through. It was a good time. And then after that, we moved to our current location where we've been for 19 years. So the Lord blessed the business and it grew. And I finally learned how to do furniture restoration. <laughs> God has blessed us there and he's uh, given me a good reputation. And also, since we moved to Kentucky, we had two more children, Lila and Brent, who are here today. Well, you might think from things I've said that life has been a bed of roses. You have to remember that roses have thorns. It wouldn't make a very good bed. And we have had a great life, and we've had a number of trials along the way, as you can imagine. But God's always been faithful. And as I said, it was a real privilege to uh, move to an assembly where the Word of God is taught. And I think of our brethren in other countries who are suffering for the Lord's sake, being tortured, imprisoned. And uh, I just thank the Lord for the liberty we have here to meet and to enjoy fellowship with each other and with the Lord. One of the songs that Andre Crouch sang that evening in 1973 was a song called, I Don't Know Why. Now, I'm not going to sing that for you. I'm a little concerned about a stampede at the back door there. <laughs> but I'd like to tell you the words to this. And I could use your help here. It says, I don't know why Jesus loved me. I don't know why he cared. I don't know why he sacrificed his life. Then this will be your part. Oh, but I'm glad, so glad he did. He left his mighty throne in glory to bring to us redemption's story. And then he died, but he rose again just for you and me. Here's your part. Oh, and I'm glad, so glad he did. Where would I be if Jesus didn't love me? Where would I be if Jesus didn't care? Where would I be if he hadn't sacrificed his life? Oh, but I'm glad, so glad he did. I don't know why Jesus loved me. I don't know why he cared. I don't know why he sacrificed his life. Oh, but I'm glad, so glad he did. God bless you all. Thank you.